Half the Child by William McGee. It's a summer of colors, especially primary colors. The life of a two and a half year old is packaged with redder reds, bluer blues, yellower yellows. No mauves or fuchsias or tops. Toddlerhood is the first critical lock in the canal of capitalism when lifelong brand loyalties are forged. So the designers, packagers, architects, and marketers all possess the same palette. On Thomas and Friends DVDs, Thomas the Tank Engine is blue, James is red, and Molly is yellow. Shading will come later. Ben becomes obsessed with colors this summer. They help him codify his world. When I call to say I'm coming by to pick him up, he asks, In the blue station wagon? Within hours, my bicep will be red from playing Punch Buggy, a game in which time and again I prove exceptionally myopic to Volkswagens. Two hours past nap time, he cries hysterically when the red boat at Adventureland is sealed with masking tape because the seatbelt strap is broken. I point out, quite impotently, that the orange boat is just as good. He calls broccoli green trees, and cauliflower, white trees. And when I ask about a friend from the park, he says, Alex with the brown shirt? On another night, he watches me researching a paper for graduate school, and then suddenly asks why the letters in Google, a word he cannot even read, are blue, red, yellow, blue, green, red. I acknowledge, I don't know, but together we soon learn why. When I play my Beatles CDs in the car, Ben asks why the submarine is yellow. We spend the summers at zoos and my gyms and piers and amusement parks and beaches. I try to chat earnestly, usually without success, on purple wooden benches alongside snack bars or on long lines for tram rides. Hey, buddy, want to talk? I stand outside holding his tiny Reeboks while he somersaults into rooms filled with colored plastic balls. By Memorial Day, I finally conceded. For the last time, I call to ask her out for dinner, hopes fading even as I punch in her number. Within hours of that frosty response, I reluctantly take off my wedding ring and remove all photos of her from my wallet. I drop off the tennis racket her stepbrother loaned me. There are two portraits of us in the bedroom, and I replace one with yet another image of Ben, and the other with a sketch of the LaGuardia Tower. I edit my social media pages and eliminate any references to relationships. I realize there's a snapshot of her magnetized to the refrigerator, so I swap it for one of George Carlin. I'm working arrivals and speaking to a Delta 737, inbound from Atlanta, of course, and I've lost him momentarily over Rockland County. When that happens, it's a scary, sick few seconds. And then he's back, and you can feel your heart beating again. I see him on the screen now. It's the second time this guy has descended an extra thousand feet beyond what I told him. Delta 249er, I say again, sir. Flight level 1-7 and maintain. That's 1-7. He's prompt in responding. LaGuardia Delta 249, copy your last. 
Sure, now you do. This is just one of those guys you have to stay glued to all the way to the deck. Of course, I've got plenty of other guys to worry about, too. But this one, I'm giving a little something extra. Now I feel it. There's a tickling sort of throbbing on my right thigh, and I can see the faint outline of light underneath the fabric of my pants. We've got to shut off all cell phones and other civilian toys up here, as the constant safety management systems alerts remind us. But Ben is with my mother, so I've kept it on mute. I look carefully to my left, and then my right, and then slowly over my shoulder. Then I slip the Nokia and rest it right in my crotch. I see 718, and I know it's my mother. I wait and wait for the voicemail. Delta 249 is still putzing around up near the Tappan Zee Bridge, and no beep for a completed message from my mother. JetBlue 550, correct. Hold and maintain, sir. My mother's been speaking for at least two full minutes. I pass off Frontier 52 to ground control. They were supposed to just stay home today. Maybe go to the park. Nothing further than a few blocks away. Shit. Delta 249 is drifting below 17,000 again. There are only two streets to cross between her house and the park. And I think the new guy just transferred in from Dulles. He keeps looking at me. Finally, there's the silent beep and the light flashes. One message. Now it really gets tricky, but I manage to slowly, slowly punch in my password, which is N-I-M-A-J-N-E-B. Shit! I hit a nine instead of a six for the second N. An Air India heavy bound for JFK looks like he's going to cross right into my space. So I watch him, and I'm still watching Delta 249. I start punching my password again. The dullest guy definitely is looking over. Delta 249-er, correct, sir. Descend and maintain. Now I've really got to watch this guy. Two more letters on the password. That electronic woman on the phone, that familiar voice, it's as if we all know her, she should narrate the saga of the 21st century for us all. Tell us of births and deaths. She notifies me I have one new message. I punch for it. Then I take the offensive and stare at the dullest guy. He turns away quick. Screw you, buddy. Virginia horse country ain't la garbage. Another delta, this one a 757, gets handed to me. Then it's my mother's voice. I take one quick look around, and screw it, I listen. She knows I'm at work, and she knows it's busy, and she doesn't want to bother me, but she knows I leave the answering machine on my phone when I'm working, so she knows it's okay to leave a message, and she and Ben are back from the park, and he played in the sprinklers, but now he's pooped, and he fell asleep on the sofa, and she doesn't want to wake him to go to the store, because she doesn't really have anything in. So how about, on my way over to her place, I stop off at Hunan Gardens? And don't forget, beef on a stick for Benji. I sigh. Delta 249-er, LaGuardia, need you to continue descending, sir. In the old days, when I walked into this room, everything else ceased to exist. Even in the married years, she ceased to exist, too. 
That was before Ben. He changed all the rules. And I realize this isn't the first time lately my son has distracted me from my life-and-death work high up in this tower. It's a summer spent talking with professionals. Two marriage counselors, one child psychologist, three attorneys, two mediators, one accountant, one certified social worker. Trained professionals all. The offices are lined with laminated Ivy League degrees, curlicued certificates, Albany-issued licenses. I'm living in the now-quiet one-bedroom apartment in Queens. She and Ben are just a few blocks away with her parents. And when he's with me, I find we often stay overnight with my mom in the old row house where I slept as a child, and where my sister Katie comes to play with her favorite nephew. The professionals all have offices in Manhattan. This is somber business, not for outer borough types. Currently, we're separated but not yet divorced, and have no formal or even informal visitation schedule in place. I just pick up Ben whenever my shifts allow. My strongest supporters think I'm deluded, but most mornings I wake up hoping this whole thing can be put back together, primarily because I'm not even absolutely clear why she left. What I don't know is soon the time Ben and I spend together will be micromanaged, not to the day or even the hour, but to the minute. The father shall return the child to the mother on the second and fourth Wednesdays of the month by 7.45 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. What I also don't know is these agreements will become more, not less restrictive, as the years pass. I'll learn two weekends a month is not the same as every other weekend. And now at work, I rap on the cubicle of my union rep. Is there a time limit on the counseling from the employee assistance program? So, could it cover legal advice too? Can you break down my monthly Aetna health fund deductions? You know, how much for me and just one dependent? I'm back working five-day shifts again, which at congested la garbage in the summer feels like ten days. My ears hum for hours afterward, and I jerk spasmodically in odd settings. She always said I spoke to inbound aircraft in my sleep. I've been granted a leave for graduate school, so some weeks I'm only in the tower three days. But ever since she dropped those words, we've got to talk, I'm thinking I'll have to postpone grad school. I can't work and spend time with Ben and still go to NYU, so school may wait. Even though I already waited six years, while she got to finish graduate school ahead of me. Aside from any sentence, including the the term testicular, I think the worst four-letter words a man can hear are, we've got to talk. Drinks after work in Astoria with other controllers, asking the same rhetorical questions over and over, sometimes forgetting I'm not going home to my wife and son. I'm drawing Ben off after 45 minutes in the tub. His blonde hair looks dark since it's wet and combed over, and his face is flushed, and his skin is still clammy, and he smells terrific. And he's tired, but he's smiling. And he's got that happy little kid who just took a bath look no amount of money can buy to make your heart soar any higher. 
Daddy, make me a bundle, he asks. A blue bundle. I'm tired, but I can't refuse. I take the large bath towel, more soggy than fluffy now, and start wrapping it around him, mummy style, until the only flesh that peeks through is his head. He's already giggling. I lift the whole package by securing leverage just above his knees so he doesn't top-heavily bend over into himself like one of those balloon men dancing outside car washes, and he stiffly leans against me as we walk to our bedroom. But I make a tactical error. Ha! I laugh. You're trapped. The good guy's leader. No way to escape. He's laughing, too. That little head sways back and is propelled forward so quickly I can't even respond before it cracks into that patch of forehead just above the bridge of my nose. When I shout, he cries. Later, after he's untrussed and two bath towels have soaked up the A-positive pouring from both nostrils, it takes all my energy to smile. So Ben knows Daddy's still standing even after the Liverpool kiss of all Liverpool kisses. He holds dog and asks why the blood is red on my face but brown on the towels. We ponder that, too. I live in the present. I'm on break, but I haven't left my station, and I stare for long minutes without blinking. It's the rare day Runway 22 is in use for departures, and I watch as aluminum meets that mix of nitrogen and oxygen, and each time, every time, the eye is deceived and the pressurized vessel somehow manages to lift, and then it grows smaller and smaller still. That old New Yorker cover, not so funny now to anyone up high like me, staring past Flushing and the Bronx and Connecticut and this blue ball itself. I live in the present, but there are many things I don't know, so I'm continually learning and forgetting, learning and forgetting. Among the things I don't know is that my life, which has never been worse, is going to get much worse, and much worse still, and even much worse after that. I don't know fundamental truths will be exposed as lies. Allegiances will shift. Dormant veracity will form new foundations. I don't know that later I will say, if I had known all the things I had not known at this time, I would have killed myself. Perhaps on this very day, this rarest of days, a runway 22 departures day. I'm one more pressurized vessel, with external pressure fighting pressure from within. And so, I find myself staring at those pressurized tubes ascending and descending on the horizon, as if they always had and always will. And I continually ask, but who are we? We pretend we inhabit emotions one at a time, that sensations patiently approach us like faceless ninjas who bounce on the balls of their feet, dutifully waiting their turn to attack the bloated hero in a cheap action movie. A psych seminar I've signed up for is unironically entitled Understanding Grief, and the instructor addresses the five stages as if they're Mount Rushmore-like in their chiseled separation, as if denial and bargaining can't cohabitate, or anger and acceptance never overlap, 
as if we are one person rather than thousands and with tens of thousands more to come. Are we still the same person when at our worst or at our best? Do we split the difference? Or we're all that and more? Less? I've read that biologically, our cells completely regenerate every seven years. But do our eternal truths remorph as well? What are the moments when we all shout, I hate you, I hate you? Who are we then? And who are we when we whisper love and devotion? When time unfolds in ways we never had the ability to foresee? Do dead feelings coalesce into lies? How are we to know when the truths of now will calcify into the lies of then? Is nothing we feel truly certain? Ever? Ever? Why do we attribute individuals with qualities, bravery, fidelity, devotion, as if such qualities are unchanging? We can be brave on Tuesday and cowardly on Wednesday, and brave again on Friday. We can keep vows, and keep them, and keep them, and keep them, and then not keep them. We can be devoted, until we are not. I'm old enough to have written essays for school on a typewriter, and that ancient device gave me a permanent record of the changes, the edits, the tweaks. The pages were filled with scratch-outs, cross-outs, inserts, subtractions, additions, improvements, detractions, and, of course, the gloppiness of whiteout. But a record, nevertheless. Now, the ever-virginal tabula rasa of my MacBook Pro screen reflects all too accurately how I record internal sentiments. But I record them only in the now, my heart blinking like a cursor. I have no past feelings, and there are none to come, just this urge, this pang, this pull, escape, infatuation, panic, horror, devotion. When I was a kid, we always had station wagons, and sometimes I sat looking out the rear, and sometimes I sat in the forward-facing second seat. And now I wonder which view was more accurate, where I've been or where I'm going. Both vistas can turn hazy, like the horizon I can barely see past the Whitestone Bridge towers. Annabelle, my mentor when I was a psych major, told me I should keep a journal, that writing about my feelings will bring lucidity, and maybe, dare to hope, even transcendence. So, here it is. Professionally, I've always wanted to do two things speak to airplanes, and study the human mind. But I find my own mind keeps shifting, and shifting so quickly, I have no memories, just memories of memories, photocopies with ever-fading pixels, the instantaneous impressions upon which they first formed, continually rubbed raw. These sands keep dribbling and flowing, even though after 34 years, one would think, they should have solidified. My break is over, and I literally shake myself as if a canine were about to speak to 737s and A320s. It gets darker, and more pressurized vessels appear on the horizon. I find all my deepest feelings can teeter 
or realign or cement or crumble. I've moved through Shakespeare's ages, and while I was once a schoolboy and once a soldier and once a lover, I know one truth. I may or may not continue to be a husband, but I am and always will remain a father. It's a summer spent thinking of past summers. Through the dog days of 2010, she did everything right. She continued taking yoga classes into her ninth month. Alcohol, smoking, and drugs weren't even issues. She ate so correctly, other women loathed her for gaining only 11 pounds and giving birth to a 6-pound, 1-ounce infant. I joked I gained her baby weight in sympathy. In fact, when we brought Ben home, the old couple next door thought we'd adopted. But while she was carrying, despite all precautions, she still got nervous whenever anyone discussed the pregnancy. More than nervous. What I thought was a superstition became a phobia. Became a phobia. And then, a religion. She was so afraid of losing that baby, she refused to speak to it, or even of it. I spared her a needle by testing for Tay-Sachs myself, but she was hardly relieved when it came back negative. My mother and sister wanted to throw her a shower, but the thought paralyzed her with fear. I told my family baby showers weren't a Jewish thing. When I'd stare in rapt adoration at the sonogram, she'd bite her lower lip and turn away. And so it was up to me to communicate not wisely, but too well, with the pulsing, squirming, kicking life. At night, I'd rub her stomach and press my lips close. At first, I didn't know what to say. Finally, I started singing, and it became a ritual. My family's been here since the potato famine that wasn't a potato famine, thanks to the British, more than five generations. Yet somehow, I fell into Irish lullabies, or what I considered Irish lullabies. Tura-lura-lura, brown-eyed girl. A limb of some kind would poke at her abdomen, and I'd sing right into the flesh until the movement abated. In Dublin's fair city, where the girls are so pretty, I first set my eyes on sweet Molly Malone. Then it was 5 a.m. on a Wednesday morning in December and 4-1's car service, 718-441-1111, screeched up. The driver couldn't have been calmer. We do this for a living, he explained quietly as we zipped through the Queen's Midtown Tunnel. We held hands for more than 12 hours in an anteroom while she crunched ice chips. They gave us a clicker, and we found Turner Classic Movies. I remember High Noon came on at noon. No drugs for her, not so much as Advil. I worked my phone in the hallway. By 6 p.m., it was happening, and I smiled through my Lenox Hill Hospital mask as I positioned myself. I was his first sight and his first sound. I snipped the cord and stayed close as the nurse weighed and upguard him. Hey, buddy, it's me, Dublin's fair city, me, where the girls are so pretty. He stopped crying when I held him. 
After I made all the calls my battery would allow, I found them both in a double room. She smiled nervously for the first time, and strands of her loose red hair fell across white skin. He nestled with his eyes closed. She softly whispered a Richard Rogers tune in his ear. Ten minutes ago, I met you. I left them finally and walked till I found the number six train. Amazingly, the world was functioning pretty much as it had the day before. I boarded the subway and sat. Club-bound teenagers were innocently jostling and making noise. I tried reading a Claritin ad, but the tears brimmed over too quickly. I imagined quite a few more decades like this, and it didn't seem at all bad. In fact, I can't admit this out loud, but it would still seem good to me. It's the FAA's annual picnic, and I take Ben. He sits in my lap during tug-of-war. So this is just to keep the record straight, because I guess it's necessary. I grew up in Queens, and I'm the middle in an Irish brood of six. Not a middle, the middle. Because there's five now. My father Tom met my mother Eileen late, and he was pushing 40 when I came along after the bicentennial. I'm stuck in the pack. The oldest is Tommy, and the youngest, Kevin. And I've got two sisters, Carrie and Katie. My sister Elizabeth, who came right before me, died when I was young. It was Catholic grammar school and Catholic high school. Then, at Queens College, I ran into a little difficulty I try not to forget. The five-year plan. But my gap year wasn't spent in Venice or interning for a family friend in the Senate. I worked construction in Long Island City and wondered whether or not life was worth living without antidepressants. Drinking with illegals that flooded into Sunnyside and tore up their return tickets on Aer Lingus. Sleeping with Delia, a divorced mom 15 years older than I, who loved 10,000 maniacs and getting stoned to Hey Jack Kerouac. After a while, QC looked damn good. It took an extra year, but I pursued dual studies for a degree in psychology with a minor in meteorology, of all things. But I actually did have a plan. See, in the summers, we rented bungalows in Rockaway, even after Rockaway turned to shit, and then turned back again. Of course, last year, Hurricane Sandy introduced new waves of shit. But for me, Rockaway wasn't about the beach or boardwalk. It was the final approach to JFK, especially runway 4L, right over our heads. I became an aviation geek, drooling over L-1011s before I walked upright. In fact, I spent a good chunk of my childhood unintentionally high on testers' glue from slapping together model planes. I started talking to aircraft, and now I still do. I went straight from QC into the Air Force and made it into controller school. Then I spent time at MacDill near Tampa and another year in Dover, Delaware, before they finally stationed me at Naval Air Force Keflavik in Iceland. Up there I drank too much, and for the first time slept with women I didn't know by name. When I got out, my FAA paperwork was filed. I did civilian training down at the Mike Monroney Aeronautical Center 
in Oklahoma City. After Oak City, I spent a few years in the tower at Stewart in upstate Newburgh. I was at LaGuardia before I was 30. Some of the shortest runways, coupled with some of the most crowded airspace, all resting on Flushing Landfill. I soon found out why they call it La Garbage. And in the greatest nation on Earth, we're still using Korean War-era radar and slips of paper to track airplanes. Only thing is, I had a secret. Sure, I always liked talking to planes, but I also wanted to learn more about the people talking to planes. That's why my major was psychology. I plotted it out. Put in a few years, apply for a grant, earn a paid leave, attend graduate school, and study the challenges of high-stress work. A specialist, an expert, a go-to guy. Even the FAA liked it. But it was scary how perfectly everything went. Right until the day I met her. Stewart is near West Point, just off the thruway, and she came to spend the day. She was researching her master's thesis, and some wingnut in regional public affairs greenlighted her, without worrying if she was Al-Qaeda. She had long red hair and wore a gray two-piece suit, a little too tight, maybe, and carried a battered, soft-sided briefcase with one broken handle. This will sound insane, but that broken handle helped me fall in love with her. Her field was cognitive psychology, and she had this whacked idea of analyzing controllers, both on and off the job, to determine the philosophical and social leanings of those in high suicide rate professions. I became the off-the-job subject. That was in 2007. We married in 2008. Ben was born on December 1st, 2010. She walked out one month before Ben's second birthday.